There you go. Hey, we're glad you're here this morning, and so we're going to try to get you up a little bit more again. All right, so we're going to try it really good. Good morning. Good morning. That's perfect. Now, how many of you know what we're going to celebrate in two months and four days? Anybody know? Christmas. Some of you are like, what? And so, yeah, especially when you're in Florida and it's hot all the time. And so the, the, I'm used to like the fall leaves coming and you kind of got a, you know, kind of a passageway to Christmas, but apparently not in Florida. So anyway, we know that's coming. Now, I have some really good news for you and I need total honest disclosure. I mean, I need you to be so honest today. It spooks your people around you. All right. So that's kind of the honesty I want today. I found out this week as I was researching something that's very important about Christmas, you might want to write it down because this information is something you don't want to miss. Here it is. You ready? I found out that this year at Christmas, there are 22 brand new Hallmark movies. Right? Right? Now, how many of you are excited about Hallmark movies? Let me see your hands. Now, I know some of you men are like, we don't watch Hallmark in our house, right? Well, you'd rather watch Hallmark than Lifetime because Lifetime ends with the wives always taking out the husband. So you much want to watch Hallmark, right? And so in our household, I enjoy watching Hallmark, but let me tell you something about Hallmark I do enjoy. We always know how it's going to end, don't we? You always know where it's going. I mean, and for some of you, like, no, you don't. Yes, you do. I mean, it always starts something like this, right? There's a person either looking for love. Or they're looking for a miracle, a Christmas miracle, and they, and then all of a sudden, early in the movie, they find it, right? They find the love of their life, or they find this great Christmas miracle. And it is so amazing, there's a moment where you're like, there's nothing that can happen that would totally destroy this love that's in their life. And then it does, right? Something comes along, and the love gets destroyed, and, and it's so bad, in fact, you're like, there's nothing. There's, there's no way out of this. I mean, this is so bad. There's no way that they're ever going to reconcile, and everything is going to get back together because this is just so terrible. There's no way this is going to get fixed until it does, right? And something happens. Now listen, here's the point. Something happens in that movie. Something happens in those Hallmark movies where someone shares their heart, right? I mean, there's great tension in a relationship and things aren't going just right and then there's this, this, uh, this consequential meeting that happens and, and it just kind of happens by happenstance and then they begin to share and the next thing you know, one person, the one that kind of turned things south, they begin to share their heart with the person and things begin to turn around. You know what's going to happen in the movie when all of a sudden you hear the music change, right? It goes from this gloom and doom like, you know, Freddy Krueger kind of music until all of a sudden there's this love warming and endearing kind of music and in that moment the heart is being shared and we know the rest of the story they live happily what ever after assume you're like yeah that really does describe hallmark movies right i mean that's just the way they're wired now here's you say doug why in the world would you start with hallmark today here's why because in every hallmark movie there's always a tipping point a point where things are going south and a moment where their heart is being shared and things begin to change. What you heard Elijah read a while ago was 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Grab your phone, go to an app. I don't care. Grab somebody else's phone. Just make sure you give it back when we're done today. But find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because when you turn there, here's what you're going to find out. The apostle Paul is sharing his heart with the Thessalonica church. 
Now, I want to remind you in chapter 1 what Paul did. Chapter 1, Paul quickly complimented this church. He said things like this. I know that you've had a genuine life change. I mean, I've seen a change of direction in your life. I've seen a change of affection in your life. And he talks to them and says, man, there is, you are truly devoted to the Lord. And the last thing he says to them is, man, you are living a missional lifestyle. I mean, Paul really compliments this church of Thessalonica as a church that truly has something more. But let me tell you why Paul is sharing his heart here. Because in Thessalonica, there was, and we're going to find out in a little bit, but there were some, some things going on there in the, the city of Thessalonica where people were a bit skeptical of Paul, where people were just a bit on the edge of curious and not sure that Paul was all that honest. And so they were circulating some, some skepticism about Paul, about his credentials and about things that he said. I mean, think about it from this context. We look at the Apostle Paul and go, you know, we know his story and, and when Jesus changed his life and he, and he wrote half the, the New Testament. And we look at that and go, who could ever look down on Paul? Well, think about it for a minute. This guy was a Pharisee, right, originally. And you know what that means, right? I mean, they kind of walked into life with some, some different ideas. They walked into life, and life was all about honoring God and honoring themselves and not being unclean and, and keeping the law. I mean, they had a, a set system of beliefs. And Paul was not only that Pharisee, but he was also the kind of Pharisee that hated Christians. That he was actually the one in charge of sending out teams and going on teams that were going to execute Christians. In fact, you read the book of Acts, you find out that Paul held the coat of the person that stoned the very first martyr, Stephen. That was him. His name was Saul. That was his story. And then he had a life-changing experience on the way to Damascus. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and his life forever was changed. And now he's coming, and he's preaching a message about a Savior who has turned Rome upside down. So if you're the people in Thessalonica, do you have a right to be a bit skeptical of a guy who once killed Christians? Now he claims to be a Christian and he's preaching a message that has got Rome in total confusion? Sure you do. And so Paul shares his heart with this church in Thessalonica. Now here's the heart that Paul shares. He shares this, that he has a heart for ministry. And I want you to write that down. Paul's heart was a heart for ministry. Now here's what I mean by ministry. Paul's heart was a heart to invest in the people of Thessalonica. The heartbeat of Paul was to pour all he had and all he knew into the people in the church of Thessalonica. His heartbeat was to pour into them. Now, here's why that is so important for us today. If we're going to claim to have something more, if we've truly had a life change, if we truly are devoted to God, and if we truly are living a life on mission for God, if that's truly our story, we have to have a heart for ministry. We have to have a heartbeat that truly says, I can't wait to truly invest in people. I can't wait to bring a godly impact into somebody else's life. Now, think about it for just a moment. Is that your heartbeat this morning? Is that our heartbeat, to really invest in people, to take all that God has given us, all that God has shown us, all that we've experienced in God, and really pour that back into somebody else? Most of us, the answer is, I want to, but I don't. So here's the tension question we're going to wrestle with today. What does it look like to truly have a heart for ministry? What does it look like to truly desire to impact and invest our lives into somebody else. If you have your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's three things I want to pull from the passage that I want you to write down. Here's the first one. What does it look like to have a heart for ministry? Number one, a determination to go the distance. 
a determination to go the distance. Look with me in verse 1 and 2 again. It says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now stop right there. He tells us a couple things here, and here's some homework for all of us tonight. Tonight, you need to go back and read the book of Acts chapter 16 and chapter 17 because it gives us a great uh, foundation for the book of Thessalonians, okay? Now, here's what Paul mentions first of all. He talks about things that happened in chapter 16 of Acts. He talks about his time at Philippi, and here's what he says. I suffered and I was mistreated. You know what he said in the text? He said, when I was at Philippi, I suffered and I was shamefully treated. Now, here's what he means by suffering. He was beaten. He was beaten. Acts chapter 16, go read it. Paul was beaten. Now, was he beaten because he was annoying? No. Was he beaten because he thought he was smarter than everybody else? No. Why was Paul beaten? Anybody want to guess? Why was Paul beaten? Why was he beaten, though? Why was he persecuted? Why? Because the gospel. Because there was only one message that Paul was consumed with. In fact, I love Paul. I love reading Paul. And my favorite book that Paul wrote is 1 Corinthians because it's like church gone wild. I mean, it is unbelievable book. But the thing I love about it is there's points in 1 Corinthians where Paul gets so distraught with what he's writing to a church in Corinth, he stops and he just says this, Christ crucified. It's like, it's like he's so frustrated that he's only got one thing that can come out of his mouth and on the paper is like, Christ crucified. Why? Because Paul was consumed with the gospel. Paul was consumed with the fact that there was a heavenly father who loved us and sent his only son to die for us. When life doesn't make sense, that does. And Paul was consumed with it. And he says, when I was in Philippi, man, I suffered. I was beaten for the gospel. Knowing that, he says, I was mistreated. If you go back and read chapter 16 of Acts, you'll find out this, that Paul was publicly disgraced. Now, how many of you would love to be that person preaching the gospel in your workplace, and they call this massive meeting, hundreds and hundreds of workers, and they call you up on the stage there, and they call you by name, and they publicly shame you for the message that you've been preaching? How many of you would enthusiastically jump on board for that one? But Paul did happened to Paul. He was unjustly judged and beaten. And that was just in Philippi. Then in Acts chapter 17, he says, not only did I suffer, and only was I mistreated, he said, then when I went to Thessalonica, which is right after that, he used the phrase, there was, you know, was, I came in the midst of much conflict. Now, what was the conflict that was going on in Thessalonica? Paul was accused of treason. He said that what Paul said, and Acts chapter 17 says that what Paul is doing is against Caesar, it is against Rome. He was accused of treason to the point where the, the Jewish people in Thessalonica formed a mob to kill Paul and to kill Silas. But they couldn't find him. So they took the guy's house they were hanging out in, whose name was Jason, and they drug him and his brothers out to the middle of this, and they began to abuse them. It was so bad that Paul had to escape at nighttime to go to Berea because he was in such persecution. However, listen to this. However, nothing stopped Paul from getting to the believers in Thessalonica. See, Paul wasn't listing those things to go, you know what, man, life is tough. I have suffered, I've been persecuted, I've, I've been called a, a, someone who's committed treason, I mean, they've got a mob against me. I mean, Paul's agenda wasn't, woe is me. His agenda wasn't, look how bad my life is. His agenda was this, me coming to you was not in vain. 
In other words, even despite suffering, despite persecution, despite becoming someone who's committed treason, despite all that I went through in Philippi, despite what I went through when I came to Thessalonica, I came to you because I love you. There was nothing going to stop me from getting to you. In fact, I think the heart of Paul is best shaped in the great theologian Diana Ross who said this, Baby, there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. And there ain't no river wide enough. To what? To keep me from getting to you, babe. Right? You, I mean, you, you remember that, right? Right? Some of you need to go back and listen to it. And when you heard that song, there was something in you when you were young. I was a kid. You might not have been a kid, but I was a kid when I heard that. There was something in me that goes, man, that is determination. That Nothing's going to stop me from getting to where I want to be and the person I want to be with. That's Paul's heart here. You need to see that. His heart for ministry started with a devotion, a determination to go the distance. Nothing was going to stop Paul. Everybody say nothing. Nothing was going to stop Paul from getting to them. So when I read this passage, the first question that comes to my mind is, what was the source of Paul's determination? I mean, it's one thing to be determined, but let's just, let's just be real candid this morning. If you, me and you were in that situation, if you and I were in that situation, and we were trying to go share the good news of the gospel with somebody, and we faced some persecution, and we faced some trials, and we faced some mistreatment, and we faced being unjustly judged, how many of us would let those things sidetrack us? And we would kind of get preoccupied and get derailed and wouldn't find ourselves completely the task. How many of you are like Doug and you'd probably get side ramped? Yeah. Yeah. So what was the motivation for Paul? What was the thing that gave him the determination he needed? Listen to this when he said this in verse 2. As you know, we had boldness in who? God. Our boldness was in God. And I have that underlined in my Bible because what Paul is saying is despite the suffering, despite the shame, despite all we went through at Philippi and Thessalonica, there was nothing going to stop me from getting to you. Yes, some things could have derailed me, but the reason I am so determined is not the boldness I have in my ability, not the confidence I have in my message, but the boldness I have in our God. My confidence is not in me. My confidence is in him. Now, if you believe that today, say amen. That was, the, that was the source of his determination is, not that he mustered up some boldness. I mean, have you ever had that moment? I'll, get, I'll give you an example. When I was a junior in high school, uh, our youth group went to a place called Canicuck. It's in Branson, Missouri. It's one of these outdoor ropesy kind of things. It was amazing. And, and I was a football player. So that meant, you know, I thought I had to be really macho. And, and there was these telephone poles. And they were like 25-foot, 40-foot, and 65-foot telephone poles. If you've seen these before, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And the goal was you were harnessed in, and you would climb up these poles. And when you got to the top of the pole, you would turn around, and you would jump off, and you would grab these trapeze bars, and then you would come down. Anybody seen those kind of things? before okay a few of you okay so here's what I do I I don't like heights at all by the way in fact I won't get on a ladder over eight feet and I, I still don't like that so so I decided as a junior high school all these girls are watching right all these girls are watching and I'm going to do the manly thing I'm going to choose the 65 foot pole and I do I choose the 65 foot pole and I get harnessed in and I start climbing 
man, I'm climbing. They got all these pegs, you know, I'm climbing, I'm climbing, I'm climbing. About halfway up, I'm going, I don't want to be up here. I don't want to be up here. But they always keep telling you this, you can't come down. You can't come down because somebody else is following you. So I'm like, oh, no. So I get to the very top of the pole. I mean, the very tip top of the pole. And what I did not realize about telephone poles, that when you get to the top of them, they feel about that big around. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're not like that big. They're like this. And this, I also discovered something very important about myself is the lack of flexibility with which I have. Because when you get to the top of the pole, somehow you've got to get your leg up and get one foot on top of the pole. And then somehow without touching anything, unless God were to reach his hand down, you've got to get the other foot up on the pole. And you've got to stand there and you've got to jump. Oh, and did I mention, by the way, you climb up the pole this way. And then when you get up there, you finally got to turn around and get positioned to jump and grab the trapeze bar. That's my story. So I climb up to the top. I get turned around, and I'm, st- I'm, look, I'm still cruising. Everybody's watching. My whole youth group there, all the cute girls are watching. Everybody's watching me, and I get to the top, and I get the pole about waist high, and then I see what 65 feet really does look like. I'm like, whoa, but I'm harnessed in, and so I start trying to get up on top of the pole, and it dawns on me, I can't do this. Now what, right? Are you going to knock me off the pole? I mean, what's going to happen here? And it keeps yelling at me. Doug, you can't get off. Doug, you can't get off. So I thought I'm going to try something a little different. So I get one foot up on the pole. I mean, I get, I get like one foot up on the pole, but the other one won't quite get up on the pole. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm like, and do I, if I fall backwards and they pull the harness, they're going to smack me right into the pole. So that's not going to work. I mean, what am I going to do? And then finally, with all the gusto I have, I just threw the other leg up there and stood straight up on the pole. And I thought, I've arrived. And then they said, hey, Doug jump and grab the trapeze bar. But whatever you do, don't grab the ropes on your harness. And it's sad to say, for 15 minutes, I stood on the top of that pole. I can't do it. I can't. What sought out to be a moment to impress all these girls ended with a moment of cowardice. I mean, when I finally jumped, it really wasn't a jump. It was more of a lean-to fall. And as I reached for the trapeze bar, quickly I realized I wasn't going to make it. And I grabbed the ropes on the thing, which twisted me all up and gave me rope burn all the way down my arm. And when I got to the bottom, instead of a resounding applause and all these girls wanting my number, they all laughed and giggled and walked away. That was my story, right? Now, you say, how does that relate to this? Well, here's the deal. Paul's confidence wasn't in his abilities. I mean, Paul had all this knowledge and all this wisdom. See, my confidence climbing the pole was, man, look at me. Look at me. I, I've got this. And what every girl found out was, you're lame because <laughs> so, I couldn't do it. See, Paul said, my confidence, listen, my confidence comes in my God. The boldness with which I live my life isn't something I just mustered up. It wasn't boldness like I tried to muster climbing up the pole. It wasn't something I just put on today. It came from something, and it didn't come from with me. It came from God in me. See, my confidence and my boldness comes from the fact that God is with me. My confidence and my boldness comes from the fact that God is going to sustain me. And my confidence and my boldness comes from the fact that God is going to give me the words that I need when I need them. See, Paul understood something that I hope we get. He understood his life was on mission. And that the confidence he needed to live a life on mission wasn't something he could just muster up. It was the presence of God with him that gave him that boldness. And I'm just going to tell you, you can laugh at me about that with poles that I tried to climb up. But some of us live life every day just like that. 
We try to have the best of intentions, do the right things, and we try to muster all up on our own. And here's what we always find out. We're all lame, right? We all fail. We all, you know, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes with my boys when we go out to eat, their eyes are bigger than the belly is, right? I mean, they have this grandiose view of what I want, and then when they get it, they eat like a 20, and some of us are that way. We live life that way. Oh, man, I'm going to live for God, or oh, I'm going to make a difference for God. And then we get in the trenches like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I had this great intention, but where's all that determination? Listen, Paul's determination came from his relationship with the Lord. That's where our determination is going to come from. If you find yourself this morning going, I'm not determined to go to people. I'm not determined to go share the good news with people. It's because you're not letting your boldness come from God. Your boldness is coming from your understanding, your ability to reason, your thoughts, your, your, your opinions on things. Listen, our boldness and confidence can only come from God if we're going to make a difference. And as I think about that, here's what I thought about. Do you and do I have people in our lives that truly need to be ministered to? Do we have people in our lives that truly need us to invest in them like Paul invested in this church. Do we have people like that in our lives? Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's just a, a coworker. And do we let life issues and circumstances derail us? Or do we ask God to give us boldness by being with us to give us the strength to go forward? So if we're truly going to have a heart for ministry, and if we're truly going to make a difference for Christ, it begins with a determination to go the distance. Nothing can stop us. The second thing it does, it requires a singular focus. Look with me in verse 3 and 6. It says this, for our appeal does not spring from or come from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with flat words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Listen, here's what Paul says. Listen, not only did I have a determination to come to you, not only did nothing going to stop me because my boldness is not in me, but it's in God. But second of all, he says, I had a singular focus. I had an agenda. I'm coming to you with an agenda, and that agenda is singular, and it is simple. And here it is, to invest the gospel into you, the, to invest the good news of Jesus into you. That is my goal. That is my agenda. Now, all the time, all of us are invested in relationships. Many times at work, you try to strike up a new relationship. Maybe it's with a coworker. Maybe you do it in your neighborhood. Let me ask you this question. Should you strike up conversations and friendships with an agenda? Well, I want to say no, but I probably should say yes. Yes, you should. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every relationship you're in should have an agenda to invest in them the good news of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can't talk about how Notre Dame moved up in the scale because uh, uh, Ohio State fell way down because they got slaughtered last night. I mean, I'm not talking you can't talk about SEC football or about, you know, painting the pots. Like the wheel. I'm not saying you can't talk about all that stuff. What I'm saying is this, is that there's got to be a point in us where we have an agenda with our relationships that we want to invest the good news of Christ. Now, notice what Paul said. When we came to you, I didn't come speaking in air. Meaning, I didn't bring some false doctrine. I know you're skeptical of me, but my life was truly changed. I'm not preaching another gospel. I'm just preaching Jesus. I did not come speaking in air. He said, I didn't come to you with an impure heart or seeking to deceive you, try to get something out of you. He says, I didn't come to you with words of flattery, which means Words of manipulation. 
Now, please hear me. When you flip on that television, most of what we see, unfortunately, from preachers is manipulation. Right? If you sow a seed of $100,000, God's going to give you $100,000. I mean, right? I mean, we wrestle with that. And people manipulate. I mean, there, there are pastors, I, even I know, that can stand up here and they could preach, and they're going to manipulate you and guilt you into a decision for Christ. Listen, he said, I didn't come to manipulate you. I mean, if anybody could have manipulated this church of Thessalonica, it was Paul. Paul could have just weighed on them, his story, and go, if you don't know Christ, I mean, he could have just stayed on them and on them and on them to manipulate them. He said, but I didn't. I didn't come to you to manipulate you. He said, I didn't even come with a pretext for greed, meaning I didn't come expecting anything out of you. Now, how many of us have those kind of relationships? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have had relationships in the past with people not in this room who you felt like the only reason they were your friends is because they wanted something out of you? Remember, you're not in this room, all right? So don't be thinking, well, they're, thinking, no, they're not thinking of you. We've had people like that, right? Paul said, I didn't even come asking anything out of you. And then he says this, I didn't come for self-glorification. I didn't come just to make myself good. The desire of Paul's heart was to share what had been entrusted with him to the church of Thessalonica. The deep desire of Paul was to share what he'd been given to them. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have a Bible, I want you to grab your Bible, I want you to hold it up, okay? If you have your phone with the Bible, hold your phone up, that's cool too, all right? Real cool with that. God has entrusted you with that. What are you doing with that? 66 books of the very breath of God that is a sole authority for how I live my life, that teaches me about parenting, that teaches me about marriage, that teaches me about being a godly, righteous human being, that teaches me what it means to love God and to love people, that teaches me what it means to be right standing with God. This book is the book that truly changes my life. I have been entrusted with these 66 books, the very word of God in my life, and it's my responsibility to go invest it in somebody else. That's what Paul's doing. The chief desire of Paul was to give what he'd been entrusted with to the people of Thessalonica. No agenda other than sharing truth with them. And notice what he says here. He says, listen, he said, my motives are pure. God has tested them, right? God has tested my motives. My motives are pure, and my heart is simply not to please man, but to please who? To please God. That is the heart of of Paul, And I want to ask you, for those of us in the room today that would simply say, Doug, I, I know that I need to have a determination to go, but at the end of the day, here's my question for you. What is your agenda when you go? If you know someone that's struggling in their marriage, or they're struggling with their finances, or they're struggling with their job, or they're struggling physically, what is your agenda when you go to them? Now listen to me. Please don't miss this. Is your agenda to get something out of them? Well, if I help them out now, maybe they'll help me out later. Or here's the one that I wrestle with. Can I just be honest and tell you what I wrestle with? Is my agenda to fix them, right? I mean, how many times we know people that are struggling and we go to them, even if we take God's word with them, at the end of the day, we want to walk out of the room knowing, I fixed you. You're better now. I mean, you are a broken pot, and now I put you together, and I have fixed you. Is that our agenda? Because all of those are wrong. Or is our agenda just to share the sweet truth of Scripture and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does? What is our agenda? See, if we are truly going to have a heart of ministry, a heart to invest, we've got to have a determination to go the distance. And we've got to have a singular focus, and that's to share this truth into the lives of other people. And there's one more thing I want you to notice this is that we thirdly have to have, if we're going to have a heart for ministry, we have to have a deep-rooted love for people. 
Now, I think there's beauty in the order here. Paul talks about love last for a reason. But notice that when he talks about love, he uses two parental figures. He talks about a nursing mother and a father. Now, notice what he says here in verse 7 through 9. He says this, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the truth, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. In other words, he said, we loved you like a mother loves her nursing child. We showed you gentleness, which means a tenderness and a compassion. We showed you that. Not only we showed you gentleness, but we showed you an intimate affection that he says here, and we affectionately desire you. I mean, it's an intimate affection. It means it's a love that's unexplainable. Can you just agree with this? If you have kids today, I remember when my oldest son, and all three, but really my oldest one, because I was like 24, 25 years old, and when he was born for the first time in my life, I think I got what unconditional love looked like. Any other parent felt that when your baby was born? Some of you moms, it may have been the, the whole process. I don't know. But for me, when James was born and they took him out of the womb and he began to cry and they handed him to me and I'm holding him, there was something about it that goes, the love I have for you is unexplainable. The love I have for you cannot be defined by vocabulary. And the love I have for you is so deep that I just can't quite put it into words. That's the love Paul had for the church of Thessalonica. Not only am I gentle with you, but I have an intimate affection for you. And then he says this. He says, I have a, uh, uh, a sacrificial love for you. He said, not only did we come to give you the gospel, but we came to give you what? Ourselves. And in other words, not only am I going to pour truth into you, I'm going to pour my life into you. Now, there's a difference in proclaiming truth to someone and loving them by pouring your life into them. There's a difference in just me standing up here on a Sunday morning going, this is the way God wants us to live, this is the way God doesn't want us to live, that's the truth of the gospel, and I go do it. That's different than me telling you that and then coming out there and walking alongside of you, loving you, building a relationship with you, and not just telling you truth, but pouring myself into you. There's a difference. And Paul said, I'm not just telling you the truth. I mean, I, I'm going to pour my heart into you. Why? Because I love you. And then he talks about the love of a father, and I love this. One thing he says about the love of the father is this, that the love of the father exhorts. He says that we, we exhorted each one of you. Now, you know what the word exhort means in the Greek? It literally means to walk alongside. Elijah, could you come here for me just for a minute? You're going to be my model. Come on up here, Elijah. All right, so, so here's what most of us think exhorting is. Hey, Great job, bro. Great job, right? And, or, or, hey, hey, I know you're going through a tough time, and I'm going to be praying for you. That's what we think exhorting is. Here's biblically what exhorting means. Hey, man, let's do this thing together. I'm right here with you, right? That's a little awkward, wasn't it? Yeah. But you did good. All right, good, good job, Elijah. Give Elijah a hand. Good job, Elijah. Yeah, thanks for not tripping me. All right, I appreciate that. But that's what we think. We think exhorting is that either pat on the back or that just that token, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Exhorting means locking arms with people and doing life with them. Now, is that different kind of love than most of us want to love people? Yeah, you know what? That's how Jesus loved people, though, isn't it? Do you remember the woman that was caught in the act of adultery? Now, let's just talk about that for a minute. She wasn't heard about in the act of adultery. She was caught. That means there was a peeping Tom somewhere who saw what was going on, right? She was caught in the act of adultery. They brought her to Jesus, and all these people were ready to stone her, and Jesus doesn't first address her. He addresses the accusers. And then with compassion and love, what does he say to her? go and sin no more. Not just, hey, I'm going to pray for your sins, because there are many. Or not just, hey, I hope you work this thing out. But no, hey, I love you. 
And I want you to walk a journey where you don't keep sinning. You don't keep doing this stuff. And so he says, I, wanted, I love you like a father. I'm going to exhort you. I have exhorted you. I'm not just telling you I love you. I'm willing to walk a journey with you. Listen to me. The greatest way that we can demonstrate love to other people is not just with our words. It's with our lifestyles. It's linking arms with them and walking a journey with somebody who's got cancer. Walking a journey with someone who's struggling in divorce. Walking a journey with someone who financially is in ruin. Walking a journey with someone who's just struggling in their faith and they're doubting. Loving them is not just from a distance. Loving them them as locking arms and exhorting them. And then he says this, not only we exhort you, we encourage you. The word encouragement means to, to bring words of comfort. To go, man, you're doing a great job. Or, hey, I know life is tough. I know you're struggling, but man, I, I'm praying for you. I'm there with you. I, I'm here to comfort you. And then he says, not only do we comfort you, but then he says this, we charged you. Look what he says there in verse, um, verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you, we encouraged you, and we charged you, meaning we called you out. Now, how many of you like being called out when you're in school? Anybody? I had a teacher, her name was Mrs. Diggs, and she always called us hamburgers. And I liked to talk when I was in school, and she would always call me out. She said, hey, you little hamburger. And I knew it was me. And she would call me out. Now, there's a point when you got older that that was embarrassing, right? When you get called out in class, it was like, this is not good. He says, listen, I called you out. Not only did I love you gently, not only did I love you with this great deal of sacrifice, not only am I exhorting you by locking arms with you and encouraging you, I called you out. And here's what I called you out to do, to live a life worthy of the manner of God. In other words, I've called you out to live for God. I've called you out. Now, here's why this section is so important for Paul. This is why we see the deeper love of Paul, because listen to this, because in this section, here's what we see. We see on one hand, this love is very tender like a mother, but it's also very firm like a father, right? Now, here's what I need you to hear. To truly share with someone the truth of the gospel, or to truly share within the truth of scripture, it takes firmness and tenderness equally. You can't share truth and not be merciful and it be received well. In fact, when I was talking, when I was first interviewing somebody, I said, hey, what do you, one, of the, one of the staff members asked me, what do I think my spiritual gift is? I said, I think my spiritual gift is probably teaching, but here's what I've learned in 20 some odd, or 28 years almost in ministry is this, is that if my, my gift of teaching or prophet, which means proclaiming or teaching the truth, if that's my gift, if it's not tempered with mercy, I'm going to come off as arrogant and nobody's going to listen to me. Or you may sit here today and go, my gift is mercy. Well, here's the problem with mercy. If your mercy is all about shallowness and just coming along with warm fuzzies and loving them and it's not complemented with truth, then there's a problem there as well, right? So the point Paul's making is, listen, hey, I, I've been determined to come to you. I have a singular focus to pour God's truth in your life. But listen to me, I'm gonna do it with the gentleness of a mother and with the firmness of a father. Why? Because my message has to be firm but yet tender. Now, some of us wrestle with that. There's some of you in the room that would be honest enough to say this, that, hey, when I share truth, it's pretty firm. I'm not sure there's much tenderness to it. Or some of you say, you know what, there's a lot of tenderness, but I'm not sure there's much firmness in it. And here's the point I want to drive home as we close today. It's this. If we are going to be a church or we're going to be followers of Jesus that truly have a heart for ministry, listen to me, we have to have the boldness to go, number one. Number two, we have to have an agenda to invest truth in them. And number three, we have to have a deep desire to love people unconditionally. If we're going to have a heart of ministry, 
That's what it requires. So here's my question. If you're a believer, where do you fall short? Out of those three areas, where do you fall short? Maybe it's in the going. Maybe you're like, man, I just don't have that kind of determination that Paul had. Well, listen to me. If you continued on the path of not going, listen, you are not living a life that's honoring to God. You are not making a difference for Christ. You're not exhibiting that you have something more. I mean, you are not living a missional lifestyle if we choose not to go. So some of you struggle with that. Some of you, it's not about going. It's, yeah, I don't mind going, but it's the investing thing. Is because I wrestle with, you know, is it the truth of Scripture? I mean, how many times have you ever heard somebody say, well, somewhere in Scripture it says this? Well, if they say that to you, pause and go, if you can't take me there, don't tell me that. Because what I have found out, a lot of people attribute common cliches as if Jesus had said them, and that's not true. Right? Right? Happens all the time. And I'm just telling you, some of you need to look at your life and go, am I investing in someone? Do I have a singular focus that when I talk to people, I mean, I'm making sure that I'm pouring the truth of this into life. Not my experience, not my bias, not my opinions, not my worldview, but this book. And maybe you struggle there. Or maybe you truly struggle in loving people. Because let's be honest, people are messy, aren't they? People are messy. People are whiny. I mean, if it weren't for people, life would be great, right? I mean, people are just annoying. I mean, people are a mess, and people never listen, right? I mean, are you with me on that today? If you're not laughing, you're the person we're talking about, right? But do we love people? And I'm not just talking about going, yeah, I love you, brother. I'm talking about, I'm going to lock arms with you. I'm going to share truth with a gentle and tender spirit. But I'm not going to back away from the truth either. I'm going to tell you firmly and boldly because this is God's message to you and to me. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today and you find yourself struggling in any of those categories, here's what I invite you to do. I invite you to make a new commitment to him. Say, Lord, I want to be an Isaiah. Lord, here am I. Send me. God, give me the pathway. Give me the boldness to go. Give me the strength to go. I know some of you are going to say, well, I've been praying for opportunities, but God has not brought one. Wrong. He has. You have people you come in contact with every day. Every day you're bumping shoulders with someone unless you're a hermit, and then that's a whole other issue. But, I mean, unless you're a hermit, you are bumping shoulders with someone. God is providing opportunities. The difference is, am I taking those opportunities? Am I see carpe diem? Am I seizing those moments, or do I have a carpe manana mentality of seize tomorrow? Right? And maybe you struggle with going, and would you just make a commitment to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am today. I have struggled with this, but today I want to have the heart of Isaiah. And, Lord, here am I. Just send me. Just send me. Just send me. Or maybe you struggle today with investing this. And the commitment you need to make is putting your opinions, your biasness, and your worldview to the side and picking up this book again and going, hey, how can I help my friend with her marriage with this? How can I help my friend who's struggling with disease with still the goodness of God in this? How can I help the person that's my neighbor who's struggling with life because they're a single mom or single dad and they don't know, how can I take this word and invest it into them? I pray for some tenderness of heart for some people to start investing. Or maybe you're the person that says, you know what, I'm struggling truly loving people the way that Paul loved people. Just commit to him. Say, Lord, send me. Lord, help me invest this truth to them, but help me do it in a tender yet firm way.
So if you find yourself struggling there, would you just, would you just make a commitment, Lord, today? Maybe you need to come. This altar is going to be open for you. Maybe you want to come and pray for the person you need to be ministering to, the person that you need to be sharing the gospel with or the good news with or the truth of Scripture. Maybe you just need to come and say, God, would you make sure you give me a divine moment this week with this person? This altar is going to be open for you as a believer. Would you make a new commitment? And then second of all, this invitation is for those of you who don't know Christ. There's one word that shows up a whole lot in that passage. You know what the word is? It's gospel. A whole lot. Right? What was Paul consumed with? The gospel. That there really is a heavenly father who really loved a broken, wretched world so much that he sent his only son to this earth to die for our sins, for my sin and for your sin, and that we all have an opportunity to experience the grace of God by giving him and trusting him with our lives and surrendering our life to him. Paul's obsessed with it. And if you don't know Christ today, that message is still true today. The good news, the gospel is still true today. There really is a heavenly father who loves you. There's a heavenly father who gave his son for you, who died for your sins. And all he asks you to do is just surrender your life to him. And maybe today when the music starts and people come and pray at this altar, I'll be standing right here. Maybe you need to give your life to Christ today. Maybe you need to say, I want to trust him with everything in me. But here's my prayer for all of us. Whatever God is leading you to do, would you just be faithful? If you need to come pray, come pray. If you need to make a new commitment to go or to invest, just do that. Or if you need to trust Christ as your Savior, would you step out of your, your aisles and make your way and make that decision today? Let's all stand together as we pray. Everybody stand with me. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just bow your heads today. Every head bowed and every eye closed as I pray. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for the truth of your word today. And I thank you for Paul. I thank you that there was a tipping point in his ministry to this church where he shared his heart, his heart for ministry, his heart to truly invest in them. And God, I pray that we would have that heart. I pray that we look at our lives, we would ask ourselves the hard question, do we have a heart for ministry? Do we have a heart to simply invest in others? And but despite all the excuses, despite all the struggles and the trials and the things that try to derail us, do we have a heart to invest your word into the lives of others? And so God, I pray today, I pray that we would have a determination to go the distance with people. I pray that we would have a singular focus to share the truth of your word and speak it into the lives of people. And I pray that we would have a deep-rooted love for others, a kind of love that's gentle yet firm, the kind of love that is sacrificial yet locks arms with them and journeys with them. So, God, this invitation's for you. <laughs> Holy Spirit, I ask you to have your way with us. May you touch our hearts. May you challenge us where we feel like we fall short, God. May we make commitments to you, God. The saddest thing today will be to leave this space the same way we came in. If we're not committed to you today and we walk in that way and we leave that way, shame on us. Maybe there's a new commitment we need to make. Maybe there's a new hurdle we need to overcome. But may we find our strength, may we find our courage, and may we find our boldness in you today. So, God, I pray for those that need to come and pray. I pray for those that may need to trust Jesus today. Would you give us the strength to do it? Would you give us the courage to do it? And would you give us the boldness to respond to you today? God, I love you. 
I thank you. I know we're about to celebrate your greatness and your goodness and how holy you are. And God, may we get so wrapped up in the song that it moves us and stirs us to a greater commitment to you. Lord, we love you and we need you in this hour. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Everybody say amen. You respond as you need to.